Devon Taves has signed a seven-year contract extension with the Colorado Avalanche worth a total of $50.75 million. Of course, I am Eric Dean here with Mile High Sports for this edition of Hockey Mountain High, your go-to avalanche podcast presented by Superbook Sports. I am, to be honest with you, absolutely blown away and shocked at this deal. I think if the Avalanche today announced in a seven-year deal carrying an $8.25 million annual average value, I would have thought it was a good deal, a little high for the Avalanche, and I would have thought, and I would be here sitting and talking about all the moves they need to make. But just by cutting that $1 million down to a respectable $7.25, it literally changes everything. It makes this a much more bearable deal. It makes you realize that currently... And this is no disrespect to this player, but the Avalanche are paying right now 4.1 for Devon Taves and 5 million for Sam Girard. That's a total of 9.1. If they need to sacrifice Sam Girard for somebody making about 3 million next year to play his role, then that would equal $10.25 million for Taves and Girard's replacement, which is only one point something more than the current 9.1 that Taves and Gerard make. Obviously, you're probably not going to get a player as good as Sam Gerard at that rate, but it's still a heck of a lot better of an option to have to downgrade your number four slash number five defenseman on the depth chart. Not that he's a number four, number five around the league, but he is on your depth chart. Uh, it's still worth worthy of. Uh, it's still worth it to have to downgrade that position if it means locking up a 30-year-old defenseman next year in Devon Taves who plays on the top pair with Kale McCarr is one of the top probably 10 arguably best defensemen in the NHL and is going to spend the rest of his career with the Avalanche now at this number assuming nothing goes astray. But I think something else that's really worth keeping uh, keeping tabs on in this deal is the seven-year term. The Avalanche obviously can go up to eight years. And I often argue, and this is always something that teams got to keep in mind is, or teams can keep in mind and do keep in mind is when you're re-signing an unrestricted free agent, you know, one of your pending unrestricted free agents, I should say, I should say before July 1st or before the day before July 1st or midnight of July 1st, whatever that deadline is, you are the only team with the ability to offer this player eight years. So you always look at it as such. You always say, you know what, if you're, let's say, Val Nichushkin, let's go back to 2022. If you feel like on the open market, you can go out and get a seven-year deal worth $49 million, and you kind of feel like this is going to be your last deal, well, the Avalanche can give you eight years. They can give you $49 million and bring the AAV down. So that's a way to kind of you know help the team and give the player one extra year of service um, even if it means earning the same amount of dollars. So that's the Nichushkin example, which is what ended up happening. Nichushkin got 49 over eight. Uh, maybe on the market, he could have gotten 49 over seven and said he'd rather take that money over eight years to stay in Colorado, help them bring the AAV down to 6.125. The reason why that's important is because Devon Taves basically took the max term he can get on the open market, but he got nowhere near the max dollars he could have gotten on the open market. So the way that I see it is if the uh, if the open market was going to pay him, let's just say $8.8 million over seven years, that would have came out to $61.6 million. Let's just say that's what he would have gotten on the open market, which is, uh, I believe, what Alex Petrangelo makes, 8.8. And I'll double check that here in a sec. So that's a $61.6 million deal. 
If you're the Avalanche, you can say, all right, we'll give you that 61.6, but we'll give it to you over eight to bring the AAV down to 7.7, which is a lot easier for us to stomach. So that's not even what happened here. You have to applaud Chris McFarland for getting this deal done, but you absolutely have to applaud Devon Taves and his camp because anytime a good player re-signs with his team, they're taking a little bit less, especially when the team is on the cusp of winning again, is in the middle of their of their window to win another Stanley Cup after having already won one. You know, you look at Stamkos when he took eight and a half to sign to re-sign with Tampa eight years ago. You often look at those deals and say, yeah, you're you're definitely taking less than you could have gotten on the open market. But Devon Taves, a player who hasn't made a lot of money in his career, coming off a four-year deal where he was making 4.1, which about three months into it, we learned pretty damn quickly that this was a like an underpayment for the ages for a player of his caliber, a player that probably would have suited up for Team Canada in the 2022 Olympics had Team Canada or had NHL players gone to the Olympics, a player that didn't use his leverage to get a full eight-year term, didn't use his leverage to get as many dollars as he can, he simply came to an agreement with the team. You know, I asked him at media day and all of you guys saw the quotes where I asked him about signing an extension. He said, ideally, he wants to get it done before the season begins. He said that the you know contract talks were going well. And if it didn't and if they weren't, he wouldn't let the talks extend into the season. Well, it's October 13. We're three days into the season. One game has been played for the Avalanche, that is. And he gets that deal done. So again, you got to applaud Chris McFarlane and Joe Sackick and the Avalanche's brass for getting this done. You also got to applaud Devon Taves for wanting to get this deal done because in the end, this deal does not get done at this number in this term if it's not for both the player and the team. And I think one of the things that you also have to add into this is the relationship between the player, the team, the GM, the agents, all of that. The best way to get a player to take less and to agree to take less and to not want to, you know, as they say, don't F with happy when you have it. The best way to get a player to want to do that is by forming a strong bond and a strong relationship. And Chris McFarland, Joe Sackick, Jared Bednar, this Avalanche team led by Landis Goggin, McCarn McKinnon, they all have that relationship with Devon Taves. And you just cannot discount how important that is for this deal and how much of a part that probably played in this contract. One more thing on the term that I'll mention, and it seems like such a tiny thing, but it does matter. In the grand scheme of things, it does matter because if you went back to 2015 and we had this conversation, we would have realized in 2022 how much it matters. When Eric Johnson was entering the last year of his deal, right after the Avalanche won the Stanley Cup, a lot of people said they got to trade in, they got to find a way out of his salary, find a way to bring back Nazem Kadri or Berkey or you know, find a way to shore up your depth and, and to not lose as many pieces as you did. But the Avalanche didn't do any of that and ultimately couldn't do any of that because Eric Johnson had one more year left on his deal. A deal that when he signed it, he was worth. But by the end of it, obviously he was overpaid, but it didn't really matter because they had other guys on good contracts and it made sense. And they ended up winning a Stanley Cup. So who cares? In hindsight, you can't really complain about it. In seven years from now, Devon Taves' contract comes off the books. He'll be third, or sorry, in eight years from now because he still has this season. He'll be, I believe, 37 at that point. Imagine if they find themselves in another situation in seven years from the start of this contract where you're going to have to lose a player like what you did in Kadri or in Burkowski because you have an eighth year of Devon Taves on your cap, on the third pair, 
probably not worth what he's making, but you signed him when he was in his prime, and that's just what happens. So just by getting it down to seven years, it helps them in that way too. You never know if that one extra year is going to help, but now you have that cushion. And obviously you can say the same thing about year six compared to year seven. It's an arbitrary number. If in year six, it's when they need and Devontae still has one more year left. Yeah, obviously it's not going to make a difference, but he could have gotten eight years. He probably should have gotten eight years given the cap average annual value, but he got seven years and that helps the avalanche. Now, in terms of what this means for the team, it means the Avalanche now have him and Kale McCarr locked up for next season and beyond, I believe, for two more years after that for Kale's case, at a combined $16.25 million. We are talking about arguably, and I only say arguably because I don't like to speak in absolutes all the time, we are talking about arguably the best defensive pair in the NHL and likely the best in general. Locked up starting in 2425. The first year of this contract for an additional three years in 25, in 26, and in 27. Three years where you expect the cap next year is going to go up by around $4 million and probably another 8 to $10 million on top of that in the following two seasons combined. They will be making a combined $16.25 million for those three seasons. And that's on top of the fact that for the last three, including this year plus the two previous, they were combined at 13.1. So it's just a win all around for the Avalanche. I obviously talked about Sam Girard maybe being the casualty of this. Not because, again, he's a bad player. I don't believe in all of the uh, the hype that people like to talk about with, for some reason, um, throwing Sam Girard out the door and making him a scapegoat. I'm not on that boat. But I do think that he might be the scapegoat. And that does obviously even include the fact that you have Josh Manson, who is 32 years old, and after this year makes two more years at 4.5. So there are options of who you can kind of send out the door because of this deal. I wonder what it means about Bowen Byram in a couple of years. Granted, I will say, I've said this before and I'll say it again, I don't think Bowen Byram's going to have a 10, 15 year career with the Avalanche because I feel like he needs to be a number one somewhere and should be a number one somewhere. And now with Taves and Makar both locked up ahead of him, and Makar obviously going to sign another deal, I just don't know if that's going to happen. But fact is, the Avs have options and ways to make this work, and getting Devon at such a low number for his value is huge for this team moving forward, and I think just an exceptional piece of work. So moving on, I think the Avs are set up nicely here. They're going to lose somebody because of this, but it's not going to hurt as much as it probably would have in the past because they're going to gain extra dollars that you can use toward uh, activating Gabriel Gabriel Landeskog off of LTIR if he's ready to play next year, replacing whoever you have to lose, whether it's Sam Gerrard, Josh Manson, whatever it may be, maybe even Bowen Byram if you decide to do that a year early and just accept the huge haul that you're going to get for him. Regardless of what it is, this is an exceptional move for the Avalanche. I think we can all agree on that. I also do want to touch on opening night and how the Avalanche looked in that game. And I kind of just want to go down the list of players and just share some thoughts about them. Starting with the top, Nathan McKinnon, Miko Rantanen. Um, So obviously for starters, the Avalanche won 5-2 in LA. That's a really good Los Angeles team. And Colorado went into their barn on opening night uh, in front of a hype crowd and silenced them with a 5-2 victory. Obviously an empty netter to seal the win, 4-2. They scored the first three goals. Y'all saw the game. It was exceptional. And it was a game that should make people realize that the Avalanche are, in fact, back. And not that they ever went anywhere, but if you ever thought they went anywhere, 
this should be a reminder that going on the road into LA and doing what they did should be a reminder that they are in fact back. So starting from the top, Nathan McKinnon, uh, what can you say that hasn't been said about him? Two goals. He had a, he had a, sorry, a goal and two assists, three points. He was great in every part of the game. I think it was awesome to see him score the first goal. I think it was awesome to see him involved right away. And it's something that you expect from your best players. And the funny thing is, you know, Miko Rantanen scored after him. Uh, well, first Kel McCarr scored after him, and then Miko Rantanen scored after that. And the Avalanche were up three to nothing early in the second period. And you're looking around and you're saying, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Because we're talking about six of the 12 forwards being new additions to this team. Obviously, in Wood, Colton, Tatar, Johansson, Druen, and Olofsson. We're talking about the Avalanche having a healthy blue line for the first time. They never had it at any point last season. Uh, if you remember game one of the playoffs, they were going to scratch EJ for JJ. And then JJ came up with an injury before... Uh, the puck dropped against Seattle, so then EJ had to slot in anyway. So yes, they had Eric Johnson and their other five guys healthy, but it wasn't their top six in their eyes at that time. And even if it was, it was for a game. It was for a game or two before Josh Manson went out as well, and then Kale McCarr got suspended. We all saw what happened. So six of the 12 forwards are different. The defense is all healthy. Alex Georgiev in goal. And you're saying this is a new team, it's changed, the depth is there, yet the more things change, the more they stay the same. The goals came from the three-headed monsters, Nathan McKinnon, assisted by Rantanen and Druen, Kale McCarr, assisted by McKinnon and Rantanen, Miko Rantanen, assisted by Devon Taves and Nathan McKinnon. So it's those top four guys again, McKinnon, Rantanen, Taves, McCarr. Going in and putting up eight of the first nine points with a secondary assist to Jonathan Druen to add to it. And you look at that and you say, like, what can you say about it? It's, it's ultimately the, the way that I look at it is the Avalanche, you can never doubt they had the star power. They had the guys at the top of the lineup that were absolutely incredible, exceptional players. They needed to add the depth. They added the depth and the depth sat on the bench and watched these superstars do their thing and probably were sitting there thinking, holy shit, what a team. Holy crap, these guys are incredible. But what it also did was it gave them four lines to roll. It gave them a center for Lekkonen and Chushkin. Obviously, the second line wasn't as strong as you wanted to. Uh, you wanted it to be off the bat. It gave them a third line that we are all have fallen in love with already in Colton Wood and Tatar. And it gave them a fourth line center to replace the retired Darren Helm and the Ben Myers that isn't up to par quite yet in Frederick Olofsson. And... They're able to roll those fourth lines so that they don't have to play their star players like they were last year. So that Nathan McKinnon can only play 21 minutes, which still is a lot, but not as much as before. So that Kill McCarr can finish the night with 22 minutes because he's got a healthy decor. Because Bowen Byram can give you 20. Because Sam Gerrard can give you 20. Because Devon Taves can play 24 because he's just a minute-munching defenseman that's been very healthy and stable for this team for the last three and a half seasons and for the upcoming seven after this one now. And then you have Jack Johnson and Josh Manson, who Jack played 13 and Josh played 16. And just by having that depth, it allows your superstars to play less, to be more effective, and to be better when they are on the ice. So we saw Nathan McKinnon put up what I like to call a plus 40 points uh, points over games last year, 111 points over 71 games. That's one of my favorite things to track. Like when Nathan McKinnon put up 99 points in a full 82-game season, he was plus 17 points over game, which in itself is good, especially at that time, but he just put up a plus 40. 
That means if he plays 82 games, you're looking at 132 points if you're at a plus 40, let alone taking that points per game from the 71 games and, you know, applying it to the 82. It's higher than that. So Nathan McKinnon, who put up 111 points last year. Miko Rantanen, who put up 55 goals and 105 points last year. Yes, them playing as much as they did last year means they're on the ice more and have a bigger, a better ability and better chance to do what they did. But now by playing just a few minutes less, they can go a little bit harder in those few minutes. And it would not shock me or surprise me at all to see them both reach those numbers again, if not pass them by a little bit. And I'm speaking about the point totals, 111 and 105, not necessarily Miko hitting 58 or 59 or 60 goals, though it is possible. He's already friggin' got two. So I love what the depth has done for these top guys, and I think it's awesome. And I want to kind of continue down the list because the next three on the list I want to talk to uh, or talk about are Nichushkin, Lekkinen, and Johansson. The second line, which quite honestly wasn't really that great. Uh, they didn't produce a lot. They, you know, they were they were good in flashes, but they weren't the they weren't the expected second line that you expect from this team. Ryan Johansson ended up playing only fifteen thirty nine, of which eleven forty five was at even strength. As a centerman, that compares to Ross Colton, who played ten ten at even strength. So it was only a minute and a half more than the third line center played. When you look at what Nichushkin, Lekkinen, and Val can do on paper. It is exciting, but when you look at what they did in opening night, it wasn't really much. Lekkinen obviously hit 19 minutes because he played a lot of uh, power play and PK time, more than six minutes combined of the two. Val Nichushkin, um, he only played 17 minutes because while, yes, he did play over two minutes of shorthanded time, he was only on the power play for 46 seconds because Lekkinen is right now on the top pair ahead of him. So you expect that line to be better, and everything I just said about the depth helping out McKinnon, Rantanen, and that line with Jonathan Drouin do their thing. Everything I just said about that line, this is with the second line not really playing up to par, but still being there for 11 minutes at even strength, still being able to roll that line and to be able to to give the the top guys a rest and and to know that while, yes, maybe Johansson, Nichushkin, and Lekkinen didn't really create, they were on the ice for one goal against, but in the grand scheme of things, that's going to be a good two-way line that even when they don't score, more often than not, They'll probably not let in goals either. Obviously, they were all minus one opening night. But again, it's one game. So that's why I'm not going to get on them too too hard right now because there's plenty of time to turn things around for them. Obviously, it's a new center for Lekin and Nichushkin, and it's, it's just going to take a little bit of an adjustment. But the next three guys I want to talk about, boy, oh boy, were they fun. Ross Colton, Miles Wood, Tomas Tatar. Five on five, did they produce much offensively? I mean, sure, they scored an empty netter. But on top of that, not quite. But again, this is your third line. I think Miles Wood were, were learning really quickly why the Avalanche coveted this player for so long and gave him a six-year deal. I loved seeing him score the empty net goal because he absolutely earned it. He had four shots, so three before the empty netter. Ross Colton also had three. Thomas Tatar didn't have any shots, but those three together are so much fun. And that's the big difference for me this season. Because sure, if you want to replace Johansson with Comfer go for it. That's fine. I still think Johansson's going to be better than where Comfer, what Comfer was for that line. Uh, no disrespect to that player. But the difference this year compared to last year is the bottom six. Is the fact that Logan O'Connor and Andrew Cagliano, I haven't said a word about them yet, and they can be on the third line, or on the fourth line, granted Cagliano missed opening night, but those guys can be on the fourth line and slotted appropriately because of the depth ahead of them. Because of the additions that we're talking about here. So even if 
you kept Comfer instead of Johansson. Even if you kept Rodriguez instead of Drouin. Even if you got Cogliano and O'Connor on the fourth line with a Ben Myers or a Frederick Olofsson or whatever when Cogliano's healthy. That still doesn't change the fact that last year the Avalanche's third line or their other three forwards were a combination of Newhook, Eller, and Nieto. Obviously, two of them midseason trade acquisitions, but Newhook, Eller, and Nieto. And now it's Ross Colton, Miles Wood, and of course, Tomas Tatar. Wood was exceptional. We're starting to learn why, like I said, the Avalanche coveted him. We're also starting to learn why he's such a valuable player. He's really fast. He's got one of the highest top speeds in the NHL. Um, and he plays such a physical game. I kind of, I asked Jared Bednar a question uh, a couple days before opening night that kind of like, he kind of heard the question and kind of like shrugged his head and like this, holy shit, that was random. But it was ultimately... Is there a comparison and how much of a comparison can you find between Miles Wood and Matt Calvert? And after kind of, you know, being able to take in the question and realize how random as hell that was, <laughs> um, he gave a lot of good answers about how they're both kind of really hard-nosed players that are go, 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 all gas, no breaks. Um, and we're seeing that. We saw that in one game. We saw Thomas Tatar, obviously, is the kind of player that he's an offensively gifted player that's going to give you 35 to 45 points probably, or let's just say 30 to 48 just to make it a little bit more conservative, but is a player that can help out and especially be pushed by two guys in Wood and Colton that are old guys, no breaks. But that brings me to the centerman in Colton. He played two minutes and 56 seconds of shorthanded ice time, and there wasn't a second of that time. The Avalanche were 5 for 5 on the PK. There wasn't a second that you didn't realize or recognize Colton's work. He was so exceptional. He's good on the faceoffs. Uh, granted, you know, in the first game, he only won 6 of 15. Ryan Johansson, however, did win 12 of 18. So, you know, he's traditionally good on faceoffs. He's a great penalty killer. He's got a permanent role as a third-line center, no longer has to deal with the constant changes that the Tampa Bay Lightning had in him and, and bringing him up and down the lineup because he is such a valuable player and able to kind of shift up and for, up and down the lineup like that. Having a more permanent role is going to make him better. And we saw in Game 1 just a little taste of what this guy can bring. The big thing for me here is all of these guys are adjusting to each other. Wood, Colton, and Tatar. They're three players coming from three different teams now playing together on a fourth different team. So it's not like it's New Jersey added a couple of guys, or New Jersey already had two of those guys, or Tampa Bay added the two New Jersey guys or whatever. It's three guys, and I said three different teams, I meant two different teams, coming from different systems, joining the Avalanche to play for a completely other system. That's an entire adjustment. So, you know, had Tampa Bay added the two New Jersey guys or New Jersey added the one Tampa Bay guy, it's a little bit easier because two or one of those guys are already familiar with where they are, the space, the system, the players, etc. All three of them came in and they were great together. And I think that's exceptional and that speaks volumes to the kind of players they are. Frederick Olofsson playing with Curtis McDermott and Logan O'Connor. It's hard to really gauge much about that line. They only got a, about five minutes of even strength time together. Uh, or in general, they only got about five minutes. Uh, of even strike ice time. Frederick Olofsson played 539. Logan O'Connor was at 541. Sir Curtis McDermott was obviously at 306 because he always plays less. So those that line, you know, is obviously not the line. You're going to see, obviously, Logan or uh, Andrew Cogliano join the line with Olofsson and O'Connor. The one thing that sticks out to me is 
the one thing that kind of stuck out during training camp in general is uh, and the preseason is Olafson won two of nine faceoffs, and you're going to need a little bit more than that. I did think he had a pretty decent game. We'll see how it goes from there. He did play over three minutes of shorthanded ice time, which, as you know, is more than what Ross Colton put in, more than what Miles Wood put in. So I think the only forward, I believe, that had more ice time than him on the PK was uh, Logan O'Connor at 456. So Olofsson's a big piece of the PK. And uh, if you play over three minutes and you're the second highest utilized forward on a PK that ends up uh, a perfect five for five in a game on the road, then you're doing something right. So while there's more to be desired there, maybe with the face-offs and maybe it'll help out when Cogliano's there in terms of just their five-on-five play in general, I still thought that Frederick Olofsson had a great game as well. On defense, you know, I already went over their ice times. What's not to say? You obviously want to see, you want to see Josh Manson playing more than 16 minutes, but he still had five block shots, which led the team. He had three hits, three shots on goal. He was a minus one, but again, you want to see him have a bigger role, but also I do agree with the fact that they are kind of slowly bringing him in. There was a lot of shifts where you saw Gerard playing with Byram, which speaks to the versatility of Sam Gerard to be able to ultimately be a number four defenseman that's fifth on the depth chart in a way because of the way that they have the line set up. So... Those are your top four horses, Taves, Makar, Byram, and Gerard. The other two are always probably going to play a little bit less. But knowing that the other two are someone like Josh Manson, who you know can be effective, and Jack Johnson, who you know can be a stable player for the 10 to 12 to 13 minutes that he gets. I believe he played 13-28 on Wednesday. Uh, you know, just kind of goes to show how good this defense core is. They are one of the best in the NHL. I would say the top six of the Avalanche, I would put them up against most, if not every single team in the NHL. Past that, we know they kind of have some deficiencies in terms of depth, though they did acquire Caleb Jones, which is something worth mentioning. Uh, He kind of comes to me, he comes off to me as the number seven option for this team. But um, I think the top six of the Avalanche is among the best in the NHL. And, and, you know, they proved it against the LA Kings. That's a strong LA Kings team that has Kopitar, Dubois, and Deneau down the middle. And uh, a lot of firepower on offense. Granted, Victor Arvidsson is now on LTIR and did not play opening night, but the Avs were the better team for good reason because of the roster that they put out. And despite everything I just said, this is still a roster learning. Johansson's adjusting. He was great on the PP, not as much, not as much so at even strength. Uh, Wood Colton and Tatara adjusting to each other, but were great. Frederick Olofsson came in shorthanded, still has to, you know, work on those faceoffs and other abilities. Despite all of that, this team looked good. Jonathan Drouin, I haven't said much about him. I think he fits in well with McKinnon and Ranton, and it's nice to see that you know he did get an assist on that first goal for McKinnon, even if it was a secondary assist, thanks to a very exceptional pass from Miko Ranton. And McKinnon's ability to be short side and shoot the puck far side past the goalie, just like what an incredible angle, what an incredible shot for him. But it's nice to see Jonathan Drouin pick up the secondary assist on that goal and um he finished up the game with 17 minutes of ice time, 16.54 at even strength, which was only 45, 47 seconds fewer than Nathan McKinnon and uh, about a minute and a half less than what Miko Rantanen had at even strength. So I thought Jonathan Drouin was fine as well. Again, another new player adjusting to the team, but still showed really well in the first game against a good team. So I think what we learned about this Avalanche team is exactly what I said before. They are back. They look good. They have the depth to let the top guys play a little bit less and not feel as much pressure to carry the team. And when they're on the bench, you expect 
the Johansson line to step up here in the next few games. You expect the Colton line to go out there and bring their energy and provide some offense here and there. And you expect the fourth line to go out there and, and uh, you know, give Olgads no breaks, the kind of games that Logan O'Connor and eventually Andrew Cogliano play and, and something that we're going to see Frederick Olofsson hopefully adjust and be a part of as well. So a uh, great opening game for the Avalanche. They are playing on Saturday once again. I wonder if on Saturday they turn to their backup and give Eustace Annan an opportunity. Uh, given the fact that they're playing the San Jose Sharks, and then go back to Georgie against the Kraken, and then Georgie once again against the Blackhawks for opening night, and probably even that Saturday against the Hurricanes. Um, obviously, the Avalanche have a three-goalie tandem right now going. They picked up Ivan Prosvitov off of waivers, so I do want to talk about the two new additions. Every team seems to have a player that you know is in that 21 to 25-year-old age who's a goaltender, who's a prospect that you're hoping is going to be a good piece in the future. Given the way goaltending has gone the last few years with like the voodoo of someone like Aiden Hill, Logan Thompson, obviously the Avs won the cup with Kemper, but he was more of a veteran by then. Given the way that goaltending has gone with players like that, it's ultimately, you just need one of your guys to kind of hit. You need one of your prospects to come out and have a good, good showing. And, 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 you know, the more lottery tickets you have, the better opportunity you have of hitting the lottery granted the chances of developing a goalie while rare are not as rare as winning the lottery. So Ivan Prosvitov at 24 years old, he was pretty much the Coyotes version of that. I mean, the last guy they had who was a version of that, I'm not comparing the two, but the last time they had a goalie who was of that ilk was someone like Aiden Hill, who's only 27 now, but I believe he was around 24 or 25 when he was traded to the San Jose Sharks. And then eventually the Vegas Golden Knights picked him up from San Jose. But you just need players like that in your system in the low to mid-20 age range that are goaltenders that have been there for a while that you're hoping hit. The Avalanche have one right now. His name is Eustace Ananen, and they're hoping that Eustace Ananen becomes the goalie that they expect him to be. But the guy in Arizona before this trade comes off to me as, obviously they have uh, Carol Vamelka, who's the starter right now and has already proven that he can do it. But the guy that comes to that comes off to me is the 2018 fourth round, 114th overall pick in Ivan Prosvitov, who was taking who was taken in the same draft as Eustace Ananin. Granted, Ananin went 64th overall in that draft. So the Avalanche now have two of these guys. They have uh, Ananin, who was born, or sorry, they have Prosvitov, who was born March 5th, 1999. They have Ananin, who was born March 11, 2000. So just one year older than him. Who's going to end up being the backup is anybody's guess. The kind of the vibe that I got from Jared Bednar when I asked him about carrying two goalies was that it sounded like they want to give Ananen the opportunity because he's earned it because he played well. But at the same time, if Eustace doesn't, isn't up for the challenge and if he doesn't do as well as you want and you want to give him more of the ability to develop in the American Hockey League, he is waiver exempt. You can send him down and Prosvitov's on your roster already. He's your backup. But alternatively, if Prosvitov fails and Ananin sticks out and kind of proves like you cannot send me down, I am an NHL goalie, then you just throw your security blanket and Ivan back on waivers. Somebody picks him up. Cool. No biggie. Nobody picks him up. He goes to the American Hockey League and helps out a team that is kind of struggling a little bit. And I don't think they like uh, Arvid Holmes training camp and what he did throughout the preseason much. So that'll give you depth down there as well, which to this team, to the development system that is the Avalanche and their relationship with the Eagles, it matters for them to have a good team in, in Loveland as well. 
And if you can get Prosvetov down there, great. If not, and he gets claimed off waivers, well, it doesn't matter. You have your backup in Eustace, and then obviously you're waiting on Frankie, which who knows there. Obviously, the other addition, I already spoke about it shortly, is Caleb Jones, the younger brother of Seth Jones. Um, Caleb is a good number seven defenseman. It's ultimately what he's going to be. He gives you a depth option. To me, he is the number seven defenseman on this team right now. Sam Malinsky is not a guy that you play as a number seven defenseman. He's either in your top six or he's in the American Hockey League playing big minutes. Curtis McDermott, we know, is no longer a defenseman, and the Avalanche want to keep him at forward despite the roster and everything the team releasing, still keeping him on defense, which is really silly. Switch him back to freaking forward, for gosh sakes. The coach said that's what he is. Um, But Caleb Jones is the number seven defenseman. I think had it not been for the whole three-goalie fiasco and not wanting to lose Prosvitov on waivers, but also wanting to give Ananen an opportunity first to be the backup— because of that whole shenanigans over there, I think that's what's causing the team to uh, only carry six defensemen. With the idea in mind that you have three days between games, Wednesday to Saturday, Saturday to Tuesday, for that first three-game road trip. And if you need to call up a defenseman, you can call up Caleb Jones and get him here in time. So, you know, if Caleb Jones is the first call-up, the team hasn't seen him in person yet, I don't think. Uh, and by the team, I mean the Avalanche, not the Eagles. So... That's something that is worth keeping an eye on. I think it's a it's a savvy pickup. The Avs could have just picked him up off waivers, uh, but by waiting until he cleared first, it kind of guarantees that you can send him down to the AHL uh, because they needed to send him down because they didn't have the cap space to keep him up with the big club. And it guarantees that you can call him back up now without having to run it through waivers. And you also got one of your players off of your books as well in Callahan Burke, who was traded for him. Uh, obviously, Cal Burke. It's actually funny because the Carolina Hurricanes do not have an AHL team this year. They're the only team because the Chicago Wolves decided to go rogue in the American Hockey League. Uh, fascinating story if you want to look that up. It's really interesting to see how that all unfolded over the offseason. But because they didn't have an AHL team, they've been sending their players kind of and loaning them to all sorts of teams. Uh, we all saw Piotr Kochetkov's gotten... Uh, loaned out to the Syracuse uh, AHL team, Tampa Bay's minor league team to uh, play for the Lightning's AHL team, not the NHL team, obviously. So they had also announced that Seth Jones was being loaned to the Colorado Eagles to kind of develop and play minutes there. When he got here, the Avalanche traded Cal Burke for Seth, for not Seth, Caleb Jones. Uh, the Avs traded Cal Burke for Caleb Jones. And they said, now that Caleb Jones is on the Hurricanes, he's also going to stay with the Eagles and continue to play for the Eagles. So now Jones and Burke are teammates, even though they flip spots. So um, just a fascinating ordeal having an NHL team without an AHL affiliate and a really good one in that in the in the Carolina Hurricanes. It's it's fascinating story to follow. Um, but with that, on this Friday the 13th, I've given you guys about 35 minutes of nothing but my voice, which I think is plenty for anyone ever. Um, I'm excited to see Saturday as the Avalanche take on the Sharks. I'm excited to see them play the Seattle Kraken again in in, uh, in a rematch of that seven-game series on the road. And I'm excited, obviously, for opening night next Thursday. Connor Bedard, Chicago Blackhawks, Ball Arena, hype crowd with a really good Avalanche team. I think I speak for everyone when I say I am so happy hockey is back. And with that, we'll put, it, we'll put an end to the show here. Have a wonderful weekend.